The Pixar animated movie Up follows the last adventure of a 70-year-old balloon salesman named Carl Fredrickson. The story begins some time after his wife Ellie's death, so the filmmakers had to figure out a way to communicate the depth of their relationship, Carl and Ellie's relationship, before they started the story. If you haven't seen the movie, the the first few minutes are worth the, the whole movie, really. It's a very poignant look at their life story. The movie begins with a silent summary of their lives together, from their courtship, their wedding day, to their first home, their first jobs, to the tragic death of their baby. And through it all, they share a dream of one day going to a place called Paradise Falls. Ellie creates a dream jar labeled Paradise Falls, and she puts all of their spare money into that dream jar. But life happens. Car problems, hospital visits, roof repairs mean that the dream jar has to be smashed again and again and again to pay for life. In a flash, they become elderly. Near the end of the vignette, Carl remembers their dream. Now they're old. Everybody remembers their dream of visiting Paradise Falls. And so he goes to the travel agency and he purchases two tickets to Paradise Falls. But on their way back to their favorite little grassy knoll, Ellie collapses. We see her in a hospital bed with Carl holding her hand and kissing her forehead. And then we see Carl sitting alone in the front of the church, and he holds a solitary balloon in his hand. The vignette closes as Carl carries that balloon into his house, which has now turned cold and dark and gray. It's a powerful portrayal of the human story in just a few minutes. Our lives are fun, deep, tragic, and tender. But they are also very brief. As James says, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. In the movie, because the story, that's just the beginning, the story goes on. Carl will achieve his dream of going to Paradise Falls without Ellie. He refuses to give up on life, and he seizes the moment to live his dream. And it's a great reminder that because life is so short, we should live every day as if it is our last day. We don't know how long we have on this earth. So we must not waste our days. And that's the message of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where we pick up in our study this morning. We are to enjoy today as if there is no tomorrow, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 22. There are 
four principles that I want us to see that undergird that exhortation this morning. Principle number one, God offers us the gift of happiness as we do good in this world. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12. Solomon writes, I know that there is nothing better for them, that is, humans, than to, enjoy, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. So after Solomon has examined all of life as thoroughly as he can explore life, he found this basic principle of life. There is nothing better for humans here on earth than to be happy and to do good as long as they live. That's life. Now the twin concepts are connected in Solomon's world life view, his philosophy of life that we're learning. The two concepts have to be connected. Happiness in life is related to doing good in life. The expression to do good in the Hebrew language means to conduct our lives in such a way that we accomplish things that are beneficial, they're useful, they're helpful to other people. We are to behave in a manner that is attractive to others. We are to do good. And as we do good in this life, then we find happiness in this life. The two ideas go hand in hand. Lasting happiness is found in doing good for one another in this life. Why? What is there about happiness that is related to doing good? To behaving in attractive ways and helpful ways for other people. What's the connection? I mean, most people think that you will be happy when you make the most money or you buy the most toys. The, the lottery sells happiness, right? Buy this ticket and winning the megabucks will make you happy. The casino business is the business of selling happiness. But it's a false happiness. These experiences are momentary. They don't last. Whatever it is, whatever you think will bring you happiness. Many people who have won the jackpot are more miserable afterwards than they were before. Yet those who commit their lives to doing good for others consistently testify to a high level of happiness. Why? What is there about doing good that results in happiness? And the answer is seen in verse 13. He says, There is nothing better for humans than to eat, to drink, and find satisfaction in our work. This is just the basic stuff of life. We are to see good, literally the Hebrew is, we are to see good in all our work, our jobs. We are to take pleasure in our labor. And then he tells us the key. He tells us 
that this happiness is a gift of God. There's the key. Happiness is God's gift to humans. And that is why we will never find happiness in things. We will never find happiness in in the world's success. We cannot buy happiness. We will only find happiness in God. He gives us satisfaction and fulfillment and pleasure as we do good for other people, Solomon says. That's what I've discovered as I examined all of life. That's the way God designed us to live. When we can see good in what we are doing, our satisfaction meter goes way up. And we will find lasting happiness in life. That's God's gift to us. What was it Jesus said? I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. See, Gift! I came that you might have life. Yes, eternal life, certainly. But he's talking about abundant life now and that you might have life now abundantly. When you know Jesus as your personal Savior and you live for Him, you've committed your life to Him, then He gives you an abundant life now. It's His gift to us. We will find abundant life in doing good, to put it in the Old Testament terms of Ecclesiastes. That's where the satisfaction comes from. You've all heard the expression carpe diem. It's popularly translated seize the day. The expression actually comes from a poem written by Horace. And the words, the the sentence in that poem actually are, seize the day, trusting as little as possible in the future. Seize the day, trusting as little as possible in the future. Now, Robin Williams, character in the movie Dead Poets Society, made it very popular today by saying, carpe diem, seize the day, boys, make your life extraordinary. The American Film Institute ranks that line as one of the 100 best quotations in all of American film history. All right. It's not original. (laughs) If you look down at verse 22 of Ecclesiastes 3, because it's kind of a bookend to this whole section, look down at verse 22 of Ecclesiastes 3, you'll see Solomon's version of Horace's line. All right. Verse 22, And I have seen, Solomon says, that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for this is his lot, this is his portion in life, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Who on the human level can tell what will happen after you're gone? So your portion in life is to find happiness here and now. And you will only find that in God. From a human perspective, who can know what will happen after we're gone? So seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary. 
Trust as little as possible in your future plans. See, we spend so much of our lives planning for the future, don't we? Now, maybe you're not planners. I'm a planner. You spend so much of your life planning for the future, waiting for the day when we'll do what we plan to do. But we never know if we will have tomorrow at all. We need to make the most of today because that's, in reality, all we have. Seize the day. Do good because God's gift of happiness comes to those who take every opportunity in this world to do good. Joy comes to those who give joy. Hope you feel happy. (laughs) The designer of the famous smiley face. Anybody know who he is? His name is Harvey Ball. He's a Massachusetts commercial artist who created this simple yellow face in 1963 as a morale-boosting campaign. It was an ad campaign for two firms that had recently merged into the State Mutual Life Assurance Companies of America. He received $45 to design that image which has become iconic in American culture. He never copyrighted the design. He received no proceeds when the cheery icon appeared countless times worldwide. In 1971 alone, 50 million buttons were sold with that image on it. And you almost can't do email anymore without cheery face here. Or some version of it. After Ball's death in April of 2001, his son Charles said in an obituary that his father was never bitter about the small amount of money he earned from the smiley face. He never regretted foregoing a copyright. He was just glad that people enjoyed his smiley face. And it did good for people. He considered, his son said, his greatest achievement, not his famous logo, but the bronze star he received for his heroism during the Battle of Okinawa. Man with his right priorities. God offers us the gift of happiness as we do good in this world. You can't buy it. Second, God governs our world so that we will honor him with our trust. A Tacoma, Washington newspaper carried the story of Tattoo, the Basset Hound. Tattoo didn't intend to go for an evening run that night, but when his owner shut the dog's leash in the car door and took off for a drive, with Tattoo still outside the vehicle... Tattoo didn't have a choice about the run. (laughs) Motorcycle officer Terry Filbert noticed a passing vehicle with something dragging behind. It was the Basset Hound, picking him up and putting him down as fast as his little legs could go. (laughs) 
He chased the car to a stop. Tattoo was rescued. So we don't have to worry about his demise here. But not before the dog had reached speeds of 20 to 25 miles per hour. Now, a basset hound going 25 miles an hour. Those legs are really moving. (laughs) Just capture that image in your mind for a minute. He did roll over a few times, too. (laughs) Too many of us end up living like Tattoo. We race as fast as our little legs will carry us, and we never seem to quite catch up with life. There's an old expression which says, the hurrier I go, the behinder I get. Isn't that the truth? It's time to learn another way to live, God says. It's God's way. Look at verses 14 and 15 of Ecclesiastes. I know that everything God does, (laughs) everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which has been already, and that, that which will be, has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. We are so busy building our barns, we end up postponing our lives. We are so intent on establishing our careers that we forget to invest in our families. We are so focused on preparing for tomorrow that we lose sight of today. We forget that God is in charge of all your tomorrows, right? He's in charge of this universe. God gives us what? Today. As a matter of fact, the only thing we really know is that God gives us this moment. Because we don't know what will happen when we leave this building. Today is all we have to live. The real problem is we don't trust God for tomorrow. When we put it right down in terms of the truth, honestly. We don't trust God for tomorrow. Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, what God does lasts how long? Forever. We cannot add anything to it, no matter how hard we work this week, you can't add anything to God's work. We cannot make God's work come any faster, no matter how fast we run this week. We can pick them up and put them down as fast as we want. We can't hurry God at all. Not God's plan. We can't take away from God's plan either by anything that we do. God is sovereign. God controls the universe. What is or will be already has been. Life has a way of repeating itself in history. But God is eternal. He is forever. This is all part of God's plan. And God even calls back the past to accomplish His will in the present. 
Solomon writes. God's government never changes. God is perfect. God is unchangeable. Theologically, we say immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's plan follows God's will. God will accomplish what he sets out to do, whether you're a part of it or not, whether I'm a part of it or not. God does all this, he says, so that we will what? Fear him. That's what the text says. So that we will, the Hebrew word means reverence or honor him by trusting him. God establishes his plan for this universe so that we will honor him by trusting him with our lives. Now, here's the problem we face. It's back to that trust thing, isn't it? We get all worked up over what might or might not happen next month, next year, two years from now. We're all caught up in it. We're all worried about it. We worry and we fret about tomorrow instead of living today. And so often we worry the most about things that never actually end up happening in the end at all. Have you ever found yourself worrying about something in the future that you don't yet have to make a decision about now? You know, you can't sleep at night because you're thinking about, wow, man, this decision's coming up next year, two years from now, next month, next week. But I don't have to make a decision yet, but I'm all worried about it. I'm fretting about it. You look down the road a couple of years, and you start worrying, you're fretting about what you will do three years from now. Think about it. It's so silly, isn't it? Don't, here, here's God's word. Don't make the decision before it's time to make the decision. <laughs> the time will come. Don't make the decision till it's time to make the decision. Three years from now, life may look a little different. It's not wrong to plan. Don't get me wrong in that regard. It's not wrong to plan. It's not wrong to think about the future. That's wise. But it is wrong to worry about it. It is wrong to start blaming God if it isn't working out. And it's certainly wrong to worry about something that hasn't yet happened yet. Trust God for tomorrow. But live for today. Today is all we actually have in the end. <laughs> That's Solomon's exhortation to us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, those who are unbelievers, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's the principle of Ecclesiastes 3. You say, all right, Dave, I understand what you're saying. I don't need to worry about these things. I do sometimes. <laughs> but trust God for that tomorrow. 
that decision, those issues. I understand that. But what about all the the bad stuff that happens in this world, all the evil, all the injustice. I look around and I see all the bad things that are happening to good people sometimes. I mean, evil seems to be winning. How can we be content, because you're saying be content with God's plan, trust Him for those things, but how can I be content when all this bad stuff is going on in the world? Well, Solomon struggled with that very same question as well, which is why he doesn't stop here in this passage. How do we deal with evil? How do we deal with injustice in this world? How can we be content when so many bad things are happening? Those are normal questions that we raise when we're asked to honor God by trusting Him. Well, the answer is found in verses 16 and 17. We have to remember that God writes the wrongs we see when His time for judgment comes. God writes the wrongs we see when His time for judgment comes. Look at verses 16 and 17. Furthermore, because he thought this very same question, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. Now that's a statement of faith, right? That's a statement of faith. I look around and I see that evil is winning so often. I see bad things that are happening. And when we're honestly looking at life under the sun now, in terms of here and now, We can see that injustice often replaces justice. Wickedness often overwhelms righteousness. That's the real world, isn't it? That's why there are wars. That's why there's all this stuff that happens. That's why we have to deal with this bad stuff in this world. That's the real world. And Solomon certainly saw that real world as well. But once again, it is a matter of trust. It is a matter of faith. And so he makes a statement of faith. The issue is, will we trust God to right the wrongs, or will we blame God for the evil in this world? Solomon decided to trust God, and that's the way, that's the path to contentment. So he says in verse 17 that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time when God will judge everyone and everything for every matter and every work. We can trust in that. The scales of justice will be perfectly balanced in God's time. Now, that doesn't mean, once again, that we don't work for justice in this world. Of course we do. God calls us to work for justice. He he calls us to work for those who are hurting. And he calls us to defend. He calls us to all of these activities. But our trust is in him. And we don't end up blaming God because there's bad stuff in this world. Contentment only comes when we trust God's timing for God's judgment. Otherwise we'll never be content doesn't mean we don't work. It doesn't mean we don't act. It doesn't mean we don't serve. Just because bad things happen, though, in this world does not mean that God is not good. We can trust Him. 
God will deal with all these things in his time. Now may not be his time. Trust him anyway. And that's the only way to have contentment as we look at a rotten world all around us. The story is told of a farmer in a Midwestern state who had a strong disdain for everything religious. And as he plowed his field on Sundays, Sunday mornings in particular, he always made a point of being out there working as the Christians would go by his farm on the road on their way to the church, which was just down the, on the corner. He'd be out there working and he'd shake his fist at the Christians. You're foolish. You're nuts. October came. The farmer had his finest crop ever. The best in the entire county, as a matter of fact. When the harvest was completed, he placed an advertisement in the local paper which belittled Christianity and belittled the Christians for their faith in God. And near the end of this this advertisement, this attack on Christianity, he wrote in the paper, faith in God must not mean much if someone like me can prosper. How do you respond? Well, the response of the Christians in that little community was polite and quiet. But in the next edition of the town paper, a small ad appeared, and it read simply, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. We'll trust him. We'll wait. Fourth principle. God uses the struggles of life to show us the reality of death. Great. You say, Dave, why do I want to think about death? I'll tell you, because when we consider the reality of death, we will prioritize our lives better. Look at verses 18 to 21. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts or animals. For the fate of the sons of man and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity, all is futility. All go to the same place, all come from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. Well, that's a depressing couple of verses. (laughs) A Time magazine article on the 50 best inventions of 2008 recognized a mechanical timekeeper, time clock, called the Corpus Clock. It's been invented by an Englishman named John Taylor. Steve Hawking was actually there to celebrate the unveiling of this clock on the campus of Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. The clock took seven years to build and cost a million dollars. Now, at first glance, the huge clock looks like this giant serving plate, right, with this giant insect on the top. When you look at it, and by the way, you can YouTube this if you're interested in in watching. It's really rather interesting to watch, actually. It's a little weird, but, you know... (laughs) 
<laughs> you, you can watch it on YouTube if you want. This dot of light circles every second. And it pulses, radiates. The other dots of light stand in the positions. There's no hands. There's no numbers. Stands in the positions where hands would point. And this giant insect, this locust or grasshopper on the top, uh, its feet march and move the gears on the top of this clock. And its mouth opens and closes as it gobbles up time. The corpus clock conveys a message. It's intended, it's a philosophical message that he intended to convey. The inventor explains, The face of the clock depicts time as a wave coming out from the center of the universe. Every second runs round the dial, a pulse of light showing time racing away. And the insect gobbling it up. Well, That clock is a great picture of life from a purely human perspective. Death gobbles up the minutes of our lives. Time marches on faster than most of us want. Life comes and goes. Solomon talks about how as one dies, so another dies. As animals die, so humans die. Humans die just like cows, he says. Each person lives and dies just like a pig lives and dies. Time marches on. Flesh ends up in dust. All flesh ends up in dust. All are from dust, and to dust they will return. (laughs) We repeat that at funerals, right? It doesn't matter whether you're human or you're animal. Death happens to both, and both return to dust. So from a purely human perspective, see, God's not in that picture, right? But from a purely human perspective, no one can tell, he says, whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of a pig goes downward. The smartest medical doctor in the world cannot tell us what happens based on any scientific knowledge. So, why does God put us in this situation? We struggle, we suffer, time marches on, and we wonder why God left us in such a state while Solomon tells us. He said God is testing humanity, didn't he? God is testing humanity in order to show us the reality of death. We will die. You say, well, Dave, how does that knowledge help me live? The answer is that we will only learn to live when we are ready to die. Most of us spend a lot of time ignoring or denying the reality of death. Very few people in this world today, because we've sanitized death, very few people will ever see a person actually die. Take that last breath. 
We avoid it. And the result is that we live for just the stuff of this world. The answer is that we will only learn to live, really live, when we are ready to die. Most humans ignore it, deny it, and so he says we live like animals, basically fulfilling the basic instincts of life. We get all excited about things that don't really matter after we die. And God wants us to see the reality of death so that the knowledge of death will change how we live. Haddon Robinson tells the story of a man who opens a newspaper, illustrate this concept, opens a newspaper and he finds out that the newspaper is dated six months ahead. He's seeing a newspaper that happens six months from now. And as he starts to flip through that newspaper, he gets all excited. Wow! I can see who won the Super Bowl. I can see who did the, I can bet on these things and make a bundle. He sees the stock market and all the investments. I know what that's going to be like three months from now. I can invest my money and I will be a wealthy man. Because I know what's going to happen six months from now. And he's all excited as he flips through the paper and he thinks how successful he can be in life because he knows all that is going to happen in the next six months until he gets to the obituary page and there is his picture and his story and he's dead. And all of a sudden it changes everything about life. He's no longer excited. He cannot possibly live the same way knowing when he will die. If you knew you had only one month exactly from today to live, would it change how you live? Hmm. The truth is that none of us know when we will die. We don't even know if we have a month to live. So we should be living with the reality of death every day, which is Ecclesiastes' point. Paul in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, exhorts us to redeem the time. What does it mean to redeem the time? Buy it back. How do you buy back time? I thought the insect gobbled it all up. You buy back time by investing it in timelessness, eternity. (laughs) And that has to do with God. We buy back time by investing in God's ways. Because we know we will die, we can live in ways that we know will last forever. And that buys back time. The old saying is really true. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We look at verse 22. And I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his portion. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Enjoy today 
as if there's no tomorrow. You don't know what will happen tomorrow, and neither do I. We are to rejoice, be happy in all the things we do. We are to express happiness in the frustrations of life. That's our portion, that's our assignment. There's nothing we can face in this life that we cannot face with joy as Christians. Is that true? Do you believe that? It's a faith statement. God gives us the assignment of finding happiness even in the frustrations of life. Rejoice. A few years ago, Chuck Colson was standing in a long line in the airport in Jakarta, Indonesia. He and some prison fellowship colleagues had been traveling all night. It was now early morning. The terminal was hot and steamy, and they were tired. And as Chuck relates in his book, Being the Body, passport in my sticky hand, I was exhausted and exasperated at the long, inefficient line snaking ahead of me. I was worried we would miss our next flight and the ministry friends who were waiting for us. He was stuck in one of those airport lines and things were delayed and everything was going wrong and all of his plans were going out the window. I don't know about you, when I'm stuck like that, I get really frustrated. I get downright cranky when things don't work out. Chuck adds, I was also determined not to let my frustration get the better of me. I determined that too. That's not always successful. I talked with my friends. We laughed and made the best of the situation. See, this is the real test of contentment, these little things in life, right? Two years later, he received a letter from a businessman who lived in Singapore. The man had been a follower of Confucius, but he sent his children to Sunday school at a Presbyterian church because he wanted them to get moral training. And one day, one Sunday, he was picking up his kids and he arrived a little bit early and he heard the end of the sermon. A visiting missionary held up a copy of Chuck Colson's first book, Born Again. And on the cover was a picture of Chuck Colson. He saw it, picked up his kids and went on his way. A few months later, this businessman was stuck in a long, steaming line in in an airport in Jakarta, Indonesia. And glancing over to the next line, he spotted the same face he'd seen on the cover of the book that that man had held up in church. And he watched him. And he was so impressed with how Chuck Colson and his friends were handling the frustrating situation that everybody was in, that when he got back to Singapore, he got the book, purchased it, he read it, and he committed his life to Jesus Christ. And he was writing Chuck Colson to tell him about it. That's the power of God demonstrated in a contented life that lives for today instead of worrying about tomorrow. 
Father, teach us. Teach us to live by faith, contented lives. Knowing that others are watching, knowing that you and your providence are working all things. And that that is a testimony of your eternal plan in the lives that we live today. Help us to rejoice in today, not worrying about tomorrow, knowing that you are sovereign and in control. In Jesus' name, amen.